0: Hey Carrie, how's it going? It's going and today we have the
1: privilege of talking with Rose Finley. We do, and what a privilege on, on so many fronts. We came into contact initially with Rose's story from CBC and then there was some newspaper media coverage and then we did what I guess we do in these ages and we reached out on Instagram to see if she might not mind speaking with us. We were really lucky that she said yes and really lucky, not only just because she's taking the time and the energy to speak with us today, but also really lucky because things have not been easy for Rose. As anybody who follows her Instagram and other socials can attest to. Late last week, I was kind of wondering if we missed our opportunity. Uh, From what I could interpret from her Instagram posts is that her health conditions had changed and things had gotten really rough. And I understand that's still the case, but she's decided that she wants to speak with us
0: today. I think Kathy Unlike some of the conversations that you and I have had with guests, I'm anticipating this one to have some raw edges, uh, really raw edges. And so I think what I'd like to do is ask you, you lovely listeners, to be gentle with yourselves while you listen today, because I think what we're about to hear is um, is going to be heavy. I-, I think
1: it is as well,
0: and it should be
1: heavy because Rose's story is one that I think more Canadians need to hear. And as our listeners are gonna figure out as they move through this episode, Rose is a woman who is living as a quadriplegic. She was involved in a very serious accident at a young age and she is now in a wheelchair and has, as a result, a number of health challenges. But we're gonna hear more that it's actually less about the health challenges for Rose And it's more about living within a society and fighting against systems that don't provide her with the opportunity to live as well as she could. And so that's the conversation in the context of someone who is accessing MAID and knows that MAID is accessible to her. That's the story that I think we're gonna hear from Rose today.
0: I think you're right. And I think what I'll be particularly interested to hear is that phrase, quality of life. We talk about that when people are accessing MAID. I'm really curious to hear about the quality of Rose's life right now in Ontario and in Canada. So looking forward to this conversation. Let's get her going.
1: Okay, Rose, thank you again for uh, agreeing to speak with us today. And can you just start us off by letting us know a little bit about What's going on in your world? What's a typical day
2: for you like? Well, I have lived in a suburban community for the better part of 15 years. I've moved around in that time as well, which has given me experience in other communities. But it's always been very challenging here in the suburbs to live as a disabled person. We just simply don't have the infrastructure necessary to support individuals with complex needs. So myself, I don't have access to things like public transportation, which, you know, how do I get to and from medical appointments? I'm also raising two kids with disabilities as well. My oldest son doesn't live with us. So that helps to alleviate some of the burden so I can focus on my younger two, but you know, it's just, it's not an ideal situation for our family. And so the last year, and a bit I've really struggled with recurring infections and health issues because I don't have access to proper personal care support either in a small community. So it's just kind of been what I knew would happen. It's it's no surprise. You know, it's 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 been several years even that my doctor has been telling me that living this way is not sustainable for me and being in an isolated community I haven't been able to create the change in my life necessary for things to become sustainable. And so I've reached a point now where I've had to apply for ODSP. And in doing so, I was told that the wait list is six to eight months. I've actually heard now that it's more like 10. And that's just for the first part of the process. I've heard that people wait up to two years for an appeal. And so instead of that, You know, the alternative is that the other program available is medical assistance in dying. And that's only 91 days.
1: That's what brought you to our podcast and our discussion here. So I've got two little follow-ups with that first. Rose, this is the first time that you've applied for ODSP?
2: This is the first time that I've applied for ODSP.
1: Okay. So what specifically brought you to the point where you need to have the ODSP?
2: Not being able to secure uh, adequate personal care support impacts my ability to work. Yeah,
1: I bet it really does. Yeah, and when you talk about personal support work, so I'm imagining it's activities of daily living with you being in a, a wheelchair, some support around transferring into different areas, or is that stuff you're able to do independently?
2: I cannot transfer independently. I also do intermittent catheterization, which I can't do independently. So I literally can't even go pee without assistance. When I'm in my wheelchair, I'm more independent. But I can't get through my morning routine and get transferred into my chair without that support. So it really is, you know, having that personal care support is the foundation of everything that I do, including being able to be an active mom.
1: I'm seeing on our Zoom screen, Rose, that you use uh, at wheelchair wonder woman as a tagline. And I also know that that's on your Instagram as well. Have there been times in your life when you have felt like a wheelchair wonder woman?
2: Even right now with what I'm going through, I know that I am doing things that many other people would not be capable of doing. And that's why I my friends have coined me the Wheelchair Wonder Woman, and I just kind of ran with it um, a couple years ago. I made that the brand name for my creative platform, and it just kind of it kind of clicked. My kids really liked it. I don't know. It's, it's just been, it's kind of been a fun way to, I guess, bring like a characterization to all that I do. I love that. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I love that too, Rose. We use a a Superheroes in Grief book that recently came out, and what I love about your use of Wonder Woman is just that, that it's so universally appealing, but it's really appealing to our littles in our lives. Rose, what brought you to really want to share your story with the press, in particular with the CBC?
2: I'm trying not to get emotional. The fact that MADE was approved the way that it was for the disabled community. And, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot more people rallying against the approval of medical assistance in dying for mental health issues. But I didn't see the same support in rallying for disabled. And that, for me, was a very sensitive topic. This was, of course, like even last year, And at that point, I never saw myself in the position that I'm in now. But it was on my radar, um, you know, that, that it was approved and that it was available. And finding myself so stuck and, you know, just even in conversation with my doctor at the mercy of the system, I knew that I had a very unique story. I've seen that other members of my community have already gone through with this and their stories weren't given the attention that they deserved. And so many Canadians were able to kind of turn a blind eye and just kind of go, well, that's sad. But I knew that my story packed a punch and that it had impact because I'm not only a woman in a wheelchair, but I'm a disabled single mother raising two children with disabilities. And so my hope is that in telling my story, you know, I've, I've shared my story a lot on social media. And of course, don't all of the keyboard warriors come out. And so many people are focused on this being at something that I'm choosing. You're choosing to leave your children. You're choosing. And it's like, if I was, in fact, choosing this willingly, and being real happy about it, I would not be sharing my story so publicly. I'm sharing my story to create change because this cannot be the world and the province and the country that I hand over to my children. Not only do I have an obligation to raise my children with disabilities to navigate this world that's really not built for us, But it's also my responsibility and my obligation to help create a better world for them.
0: Wow. Keyboard warriors. That phrase packs a punch. Thank you, Rose. I can only imagine what you've been inundated with. It's
2: been interesting.
1: I'm sure it has. One of the
0: things that you said,
1: Rose, that really resonated was around the different responses between the disability community being able to access MAID and members of the mental health community with the legislation being pressed pause on and awaiting another year until that comes down the pipes. I'm interested, could you tell me more about what kind of differences you are seeing there?
2: I just see a lot more people being very emotionally charged about it being approved in that, you know, they're saying, this is wrong and how can you do this? But the same people didn't rally for the disabled community. So why is it more socially acceptable for us to offer our disabled citizens medical assistance in dying? And it's just a generalization in me saying that, but I have, I've seen a lot more support against approving MAID for mental health than there was for disability. And so it just begs to ask the question, why? Why are we making it okay? And I, I've said this in past, you know, there, there's something to be said. The disabled community is a very disempowered community. And so in speaking with our politicians, I've said, it is not a good idea to take the option of made away from an already disempowered community. We already feel like we don't have a lot of options. And so you really are left with no other option Other than to improve the social supports that are supposed to help people avoid getting to a place where their quality of life is so poor that they feel that there's no reason to continue.
0: Yeah.
1: And what does that support look like? And Carrie and I have spoken at length, I would say, about part of our motivation for doing this podcast is wanting Canadians to access true choice at the end of their lives. And what true choice looks like is that people have the supports in place. They have the knowledge in place. They understand what's available to them and the things that are available to them are available to them regardless of where they live and what they can access from healthcare. And it sounds like what I'm hearing from you, and I know, Rose, will let me know if I'm off base here, is that you feel that because basic level of support, financial support, physical support, to release you from some of the suffering caused by your physical disabilities aren't available, that it almost seems that MAID becomes a more viable choice.
2: Well, when we look at the fact that it's not just having a permanent disability that makes me eligible for MAID, it's the fact that my quality of life has decreased. Well, That's relative in comparison to the level of support that I receive. So that seems very sinister in that, hmm, the government isn't going to offer adequate support, whether it be financial, personal care, support, access to transportation programs, et cetera. But that's why my my quality of life has declined. Like, am, am I the only one feeling like I'm being ushered into that? You know what I mean? It's like, hmm, my quality of life isn't great because I don't have the support I need, but you're not willing to offer me the things I need to get that support, but you are willing to offer me a way out.
0: Yeah. And I think, thank you, Rose, because I think reading about your situation and how you're sharing it to affect change, and then to hear from Anthony Frazina, who is the director of media relations at the Ontario Disability Coalition, Uh, This is a quote from an article. He stated that we need to double ODSP now so that people like yourself can get out of legislative poverty. However, doubling ODSP when you're waiting six, eight, two years to actually even access ODSP, that's not the answer here, is it? So... Perhaps you could share with us and our listeners, what are those supports, Rose, that you are advocating for, that you're telling your story so that you can affect change and have that result in?
2: My personal issue here where I am currently in Durham is access to adequate personal care support and access to transportation. So I've been very fortunate to not have to rely on the financial support of ODSP. Uh, And that isn't even something that I really truly at the end of the day, see as a solution for me at this point, after now exploring these programs. That's right, I don't wanna sign up to be living in forced poverty. And it, it highlights a whole other issue in these communities that don't have the infrastructure to support complex care needs The alternative is living somewhere like Toronto, where they do have the infrastructure. But the cost of living is astronomical. And so I'm very fortunate to have access to living in the city. But if I do that and I apply for ODSP, well, then ODSP takes a significant chunk of my income, which would then prohibit me from living somewhere like Toronto. Right. Right. And can I ask, Rose, has
1: there been a time when you were able to access the support that you needed to be able to live a full life that you might describe with quality?
2: Um, Yes, but not in a healthy way. I ended up staying in abusive relationships. Okay.
1: My follow-up question was going to be, what changed?
2: Yeah. What changed was me being able to set boundaries and say that, yes, I need this care, but there are certain things that I'm not willing to accept to receive it. And abuse is kind of where I've drawn the line. That would be a strong line to draw, yes.
0: So a follow-up to what I asked you, Rose, if our conversation today and the things that you've shared even in this, this far into our conversation could be heard by one politician, one person who could affect that change, who would you like that person to be? Who is that person who needs to hear you? And what do they need
2: to understand in order to affect these changes? I wish I knew who it was, because I would probably call them personally. Um, You know, I've I've had many conversations with politicians over the last few weeks. And, you know, the vibe that I'm getting is that Bill C-22 is a cop-out. It is the government's way of saying, look, we've done something. Look, we've solved the problem. You just have to wait a year for the solution, which isn't a solution at all. When we've identified that we've now come up with this benefit because there are vulnerable people suffering, and then we've said, oh, but it's going to take a year to get to you when CERB was rolled out real quick for Canadians in need, we know that these things don't need to take this long. And so the other thing that I think needs to tag along with Bill C-22 and You know, that's great. We can be optimistic that perhaps some relief will come in the future. Again, that's yet to be seen. I would like to hold our politicians and our federal government accountable when it comes to that. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But um, the other thing that really needs to happen in this country is that medical supplies, medical equipment and prescriptions need to be covered for all disabled Canadians across the board because we have people who are being forced to quit working in order to get that coverage because we can't afford it. Disabled people who are working are already working so hard to cover all of their expenses and our funding programs like ADP, uh, the assistive devices program only covers 75%. So for instance, for myself. 75% of a power wheelchair would still leave me with an outstanding balance of $8,333. Where am I going to make an extra $8,333? Right. I'm not able to. And so in not being able to, my only option is to quit work and apply for ODSP. Me, personally, I have never never had to go that route. Instead... I'm putting extra strain on my body by staying in a manual wheelchair that really isn't great for me. And then, so the outcome of that would be that my health will decline in other ways. I'm putting strain on my body because I don't have access to the equipment that I need.
1: And so, Rose, when we're talking about true choice that people are making, you are constantly making choices every single day that changes your quality of life. Absolutely. So if we think about accessibility to care and options and finances, being part of the whole picture around medical assistance and dying, have you gone to that point, Rose, where you've talked to a healthcare provider about accessing MAID?
2: Yes, I've already uh, done my application. I've waited my 91 days. I'm at the point now where I just have to speak with my physiatrist, show that I have done absolutely everything within my control in the last 91 days to improve my quality of life. And from there, I book my date.
1: So it sounds like you, you have put things into place, and that is what linked to how, in addition to the CBC coverage, linked us to your Instagram page, which you talked about before, um, in terms of having the countdown on that page. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what motivated you to do that and what kind of responses did you get? You referenced, you know, the keyboard warriors. What was
2: that like for you? So my reason for accessing it is because I continue to get more and more sick and I've had a couple bouts with sepsis and should it ever come to, and I, I don't respond well to antibiotics, so it's a dangerous teetering situation. And should I get to a point where I am basically rotting from the inside out in front of my children, uh, I would like the option to not have to go out that way. So am am I choosing that today, tomorrow? No. But do I want it there in case? Absolutely. I'm very sensitive to the trauma that my children could potentially have to endure Uh Because of my situation, which could all be avoided, which is probably the most difficult part of all of this, is it's like this doesn't need to be happening right now. It's so unnecessary. Um, So it's there in the event that I need it. How has it been? Horrible. I didn't start the countdown until uh, day fifty because I spent the first. 41 days processing the reality and the gravity of my situation. And the countdown took a lot out of me. And as the days got less and less, it just really put things in perspective for me. But I think that it needed to be done in such a way that it had an impact And that's why I did the countdown more so for everyone else, not for me. Um, (laughs) I'm very aware of how scary my situation gets every single day. So I just think that it was the best way to get the message across, to raise awareness. And it gave me the opportunity to really educate other Canadians. One stat that I continue to uh, repeat is that the average Canadian spends 8 to 11 years of their life with one or more disability. And so while this may not seem like it's everyone's fight today, there's a very good chance that it will be at some point in their lifetime. And I promise you that the day that you become disabled is not the day that you want to start the fight.
0: Yes, so very true. Rose, I'm curious to ask you now, and you've mentioned the keyboard warriors, and I can only imagine perhaps the negative or the pushback that you've received. I'm wondering if you would share with us the stories or the feedback that you've been given from people who say, yes, yes, I don't feel like I have a voice, and, and thank you so much for raising these issues. Can you talk a little bit about some of the um, people who have weighed in who are very much in favor of what you're doing?
2: that has been one of the best motivating factors for me to continue because like i said i did get you know a lot of negative feedback and negative pushback and it was how many people weighed in and said yes i'm terrified yes i'm in the same situation those are the people that kept me pushing forward and i again i you know i reiterate I knew that my story packed a punch because I'm a single mom. And so I needed as many people to listen. And still, going forward, I need as many people to listen because that's the only way that we're going to create change is that if we stand together. And our disabled community can't do it alone. We need able-bodied allies to amplify our voices and help us create this change. And like I said, I'm not trying to take made away completely as an option, again, even for mental health issues. I think what we need is more options. And even in the mental health field, we've had a mental health epidemic for how long? Where are the services? Where are the supports? They're severely lacking in that arena as well. And so perhaps we can look at what has happened in approving it for the disabled community and perhaps push pause a little bit longer on mental health until we are able to fix the gaps that we're seeing with approving it for the disabled community. Um, Obviously, you know, fix those gaps first and foremost. And then going forward, Make sure that those gaps don't exist when we approve this for people with mental health issues.
1: And I I think some of those differences or some of the rationale that people are giving for why it is an option for people who are physically disabled to be able to access MAID is because of the physical suffering piece around it. And I think part of the reason it was pushed pause is around the mental health suffering being um, arguably and I'm not going to make that argument at this point being different from physical suffering. But what I'm hearing from you that I think is different from when we think about track one with medical assistance and dying and we understand initially when made rolled out that it tended to be people who were white, well educated and dying from cancer. Um, who were accessing MAID. And now with the expansion, we're hearing people with many different lived experiences. And as we're talking today, the disability community being one of them. And so when you talk about wanting to access the Ontario disability support payments for your everyday personal support, and then recognizing that doing that takes longer than putting in an application to end your life, what kind of feedback are you hearing from your healthcare providers? Are you hearing from people who, you know, do tune-ups, I'm assuming a manual wheelchair, as far as I know, also requires repairs? Are you hearing
2: feedback from those people as well? Interestingly enough, I, my, I mean, my doctor was, he understood why I wanted to apply, uh, but my doctors known me for quite some time and he knows that i am a very strong advocate that i do have a lot of potential that i'm raising kids that i'm not the the typical candidate that you would see applying for maid and he knows that and so you know he did reiterate he's the guy usually in the area that does the procedure um and that he was like i don't think i personally will be able to do this i'm you know i just I have a very close relationship with you as a patient. And so I see that. But he did support me speaking out and helping to create change. Uh, He was in support of that. My occupational therapist, same thing. She said absolutely. She thanked me. She was like, thank you. You are a voice for so many. She said even just so many of my, my clients who just don't have the ability to speak out in the way that you do. And so, yeah, I've had professional support in sharing my story and and trying to create change because our medical professionals also feel like their hands are tied. You know, my doctor's like I will do anything and everything. He will sign letters, write letters, whatever I need him to do, but again, He feels, too, like his ability to help is limited.
1: And so what you're describing is that you have people on your side, people who agree that you have, if I can simplify it, an awful lot to live for. But it's the system, the larger system, which will allow you to live well that's letting you down.
2: 110%.
1: So... You've done this piece, this very powerful advocacy effort on Instagram and told us a little bit about some of the positive responses that you've got from people who understand your story from a personal level and also people who would want to be able to support and advocate for change. Can I ask you what have been some of the less positive responses you've had?
2: Well, people who don't know me saying things like, you're choosing to leave your children... You know, what about your kids? Like, why don't you just give your kids away then if you're just leaving them and and things like that? And it's like, but I'm not. (laughs) The last thing I want is to leave my children to navigate this world alone. That's not what I'm choosing. I am being sensitive to the fact that my current situation is very out of my control. And the only way that I'm going to get control of it is if I can get myself to an environment where I have support and access. And that support and access
1: will not only be for you, but for your family. And either directly or indirectly, it'll also include your children.
2: Well, mm-hmm. my children have also faced discrimination in the school system out here as well. Like, it's, it's a smaller community. It's Kind of the way it is. It's, it's very small minded. And just point blank, smaller community, less resources, bigger community, more resources. So even for them, we are better off somewhere where there is more resources, more support, more access. If you can afford to live in those communities. <laughs> right?
1: Right. So, Rose, I'm thinking your children are school age. Is that correct?
2: They are. My oldest son will be 11 in September. My middle son just turned nine a couple weeks ago. And my little guy has a birthday in two weeks. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. And so I I know for me personally, um, I've had cancer and I know what it was like to tell my children about uh, me having cancer. And my kids were a little bit younger than what you're describing, but kids are pretty astute. And they know a lot when things aren't going well for their parents. What have you told your kids about your advocacy efforts, about thinking about medical assistance and dying, about what it is that you need to live
2: well? I was very sensitive and conscious of how this would affect them. And so I didn't share it with them until it hit the media. And at that point, I thought, okay, kids can be mean. So I needed to be the one to tell them before they saw it on the news, or someone at school said something. So once it was in the media, you know, I showed them the stories. And I was able to also show them that there are people who are helping. And that was important for me to be able to show them that even through something very scary and very dark, there are people advocating for us and with us We did a GoFundMe as well. We started a GoFundMe to help basically the only option that I see right now to get us out of the situation in a timely manner was to raise enough money to get us to a bigger community where I can secure personal care support and get back to work. That's it. This whole forced poverty ODSP situation That's not a solution. We are not there yet. I'm grateful that it gave me firsthand experience. I was able to escalate things and speak to the people I needed to in order to get the answers, to really give me some things to advocate for. And so in doing the GoFundMe and having people donate, it's not just that they're donating to me and my kids. Yay, we get to move. It's no. Now I get to move to somewhere safe and secure so I can continue this fight from a position where I am not at risk.
1: And have you had success with your GoFundMe campaign?
2: I think we're about $8,000 away from our target goal, which would be incredible to get there and be able to keep fighting this fight. At the end of the day, I'm not someone to just kind of lay down and give up. And I will keep fighting, but every day gets more and more scary. Uh, As of Friday this week, I have no personal care support here in Durham. So I have to kind of figure out what that looks like, because at that point, uh, without personal care support, I'm probably days to a week away from going septic again.
1: Can I... Ask specifically, Rose, how is it that you no longer have any personal care support?
2: Oh, because I had two main—actually, I had three at one uh, point—caregivers, one of them. Her last weekend was this past weekend. She's on maternity leave, and my other full-time main caregiver uh, was told last week that she has to care for her brother who has to have emergency surgery. And I had one other friend that was filling in, uh, but she had to go back to work full time. So now I'm back at square one with no one.
1: Okay, so were these
2: care support
1: people friends or were they personal support workers supplied by home and community
2: care? I don't deal with home and community care because they can't provide the support that I need. Uh, It's very unreliable. They will often send nobody or just send whoever, and if they're not trained specifically to do my care, then I am also at risk of eventually going septic because I'm very at risk of urinary tract infections. Right, right.
1: So it's worked better for you to utilize your social networks, your friends who have been dependable and able to provide care, than to
2: use the formalized supports. Well, previously, when I was working full-time, I was able to pay for private caregivers, which, again, it's more reliable. And it's sad that it is that way. And I know that that's not accessible to many, many, many people with disabilities. But again, this is like the way that I've had to live my life in order to remain safe in a community where we just lack the infrastructure and the resources.
1: Agreed. And it sounds like you have been creative and forceful in getting yourself the things that you need, but the system hasn't been very supportive
2: at all. No. And and I mean, I've, I've always been aware of how awful it is. Obviously, COVID really, really highlighted that because ODSP it's $1,300, but we decided that at minimum, Canadians need $2,000 to live. Well, that's a huge discrepancy. So that was kind of the first real big like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's a very big gap between those two. So I've, I'm not oblivious to it, but I, I've been very fortunate and very privileged to not be at the mercy of... ODSP at least you know I've I obviously have had to deal with the the lack of care supports and hiring privately and and what that entails but that was just kind of something that I was willing to accept also thinking that the suburbs was going to be the better place to raise my kids but now after seeing you know even the challenges that they're having in the community it's become blatantly obvious that this is the Burbs is not the best place to raise children with disabilities as a single mom with a disability myself. Rose,
0: we talked earlier about, you know, speaking specifically to politicians, to policy makers, to change makers. What I think I'd like you to answer for us, for me, for our listeners, is what do you want everyone in Canada to understand about living with a disability? And, and I'm asking because. I really get the sense that people who live with disabilities, that's everyone's responsibility. You suggested earlier that there's a need for able-bodied allies and advocates and that waiting until you are someone living with a disability is not the time to start advocating. What do all Canadians need to understand about what it is like? In Ontario, you know, and we're a two-tier, right? We have a provincial healthcare system, and then we have a federal system that's now legislating Made. What do we need to understand about the way that you are forced to live?
2: Well, I've heard across, you know, from all provinces, people with the same complaints. And I also think it's important to note that not every disabled person is treated the same within the system. I've heard from some disabled people who are like, you know what? I'm actually doing okay. Not great, but I'm doing okay. And I've heard from some disabled people who are like, oh no, 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 it's way worse even than what I'm dealing with. And I can appreciate that too. I am very aware of the ways in which I am privileged. However, I think it's important for people to get in touch with their beliefs about our country and about our provinces. Because something that just kept coming up for me was, this is not the Canada that I was raised in. This is not what I grew up thinking my country stood for. And so to see how much people are suffering, and I get it, you know, everyone, everyone is in a tight spot these days. You know, you're hard-pressed to find someone who's going to say, oh, living well and everything's great, and the cost of groceries doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) However, I think it's important for us to keep our empathy intact as much as possible. And I've been disabled for 17 years. The last two years living with a disability have been the most difficult, and not because my circumstances have changed, but because I've seen a degradation in humanity. The first year of COVID, people were like, oh, you know, let's be helpful. Let's band together. Since then, the last two years, the behavior and the mentality that I've seen from so many people in my community, in my personal life, on the internet, it's a different flavor. And it's sad. It's disheartening. And I, I use the analogy of the bees, you know? Oh, everyone's worried about the bees. Well, we're an ecosystem. You know, if we're worried about the bees, you know, if the bees are at risk, we're all at risk. Well, if our vulnerable citizens are at risk, we're all at risk. Because like I said, if it doesn't affect you today, there is a likely chance that it will affect you one day. And so I think that it's important for us to kind of take inventory in that way just do like a stop check and kind of go oh whoa the trajectory that we are on is not one that we want to be on because the outcome is not a happy great place uh, a happy great country that we are all raised to believe we live in and so I think it's just a very slippery slope it's a very scary time for Canadians and I Honestly, think if we don't change this, this will be a stain on our country. And when I say that, I say it because I'm filming documentaries with international media outlets that have all eyes on Canada and their policies right now because they're worried that the same things are going to happen in their countries, and they're trying to stop it. Yes. Yeah.
1: When you were speaking, Rose, it reminded me of that pretty well-known quote that I can't attribute to the correct person, and I'm going to paraphrase poorly. But it says, the way in which a country cares for those who are most vulnerable says an awful lot about how that country functions. And I think that your use of the word stain, we know in Canada, we have a number of stains. And I know you're totally on point to saying that, Everybody else in the world is paying close attention to what we are doing here. And I've got one final question for you, Rose, and I want to bring it back to your kids. Because your kids are in many ways, like many young children, our hopes for the future. And so what do you hope for your kids at this point? What do you want us to know about what you as a mom want your kids to take from all this?
2: Not to sound arrogant, but I am raising the leaders of the future. That I can tell you. My kids have empathy in spades. Of course, I'm going to get emotional. They are so strong and so resilient. And I have a lot of people who, the keyboard warriors, who say things like, well, why did you even have kids if you're quadriplegic? And... You just have to know them. They are bright. They are empathetic. They're understanding. They're they're all of these things. They're independent. And they have a different perspective of the world. And so I know that my children are here to create change. And hopefully, you know, as a, a proud mom, continue with some of the work that I've started in advocating for those with disabilities. You know, their challenges are different than mine. My middle son has combination ADHD and my little guy has type one diabetes. And I see them every day live in a world that doesn't understand them, isn't built for them, and yet they just educate everywhere they go. And they teach people and they do it in such a way That I can't... Sorry. They do it in a way that I am not even capable of doing. And that makes me so proud of them. Because their impact... Is already so much greater than my own. And as a mother... I couldn't ask for anything more than that. And... As someone who suffered a traumatic injury and became disabled, I've spent a lot of years of my life wondering why. You know, not not self-victimizing and sitting in that, but just kind of questioning, like, what's the purpose? And seeing now how I can lead my children, how I can educate them and enrich their lives with their challenges. I understand why. It's for them. And so it gives me the ability to be grateful for my own struggles. And I think that without my own disability, you know, I would in some ways struggle to relate to my kids. So it it's a blessing in disguise in some ways. And I'm glad that I've been able to Put those pieces together and be more at peace with things um but i'm also just really glad that they chose me to be their mom
0: well rose thank you you can hear it in your voice and and your words and i can only imagine the pride that that goes both ways in in your relationship with you kids i want to thank you for your candor i want to thank you for your ability to see privilege and gift in all of this that you've shared with us today. Is there anything, Rose, that Kathy and I haven't touched on that you'd really like us and our listeners to hear
2: today? The only thing that I can kind of sort of speak to, and and people have have asked, okay, you know, you need us to amplify your voices. You need us to stand with you united to create change. But what do we do? You know, a lot of people are, you know, how do we take action? And that piece, I'm still in the process of figuring out. I'm trying to partner with a couple other organizations that are already in the process of lobbying. In the interim, what I can say is, um, for anyone who's interested in kind of continuing this or following me and, and figuring out where we go from here, uh, you know, obviously following me on social media is one way. I do have a website as well where you can subscribe to my newsletter... And then once I have more directive on where we go, how we write letters or, you know, what we do in that way, then I can stay connected to everyone via email. So that's one way that we can stay connected.
1: That sounds excellent. We will have that information on our episode description as well. So people who are listening today know how to connect with you and I know Carolyn and I will continue to follow on Instagram, and please know that we are thinking of you and holding you and your children close in our hearts. And please don't hesitate to reach out if there's some way that we can specifically support you in the work that you are doing. Thank you. I
2: appreciate it.
1: And thank you so very much for your time and your energy and speaking with us today. It has been an absolute privilege, Rose.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: Carrie, what an interview. I I feel hugely privileged that Rose responded to our email and participated in a conversation with us.
0: I do as well. I I must admit I'm reaching out to her initially having read the CBC story. I understood that there would be layers to Rose's story, but I had no idea what those layers would necessarily entail or um, the weight of each of those layers, and then the weight of the entire thing, uh, just, just an incredible story and such an important story to get out. And I think being able to access
1: Maid, having that available has changed in some ways how she sees what's available for her in a different way, if that makes sense. And It really resonated to me in terms of our discussion on true choice. And I'll be blunt, I don't think at this point that Rose has true choice. I don't think the system supports her to live as well as she could with her disability. And so, therefore, she and she said it
0: uh, very clearly that maid is an option for her. Yes. And I think to go back to this issue of the myriad factors at work, I understood that there were corners that society, and as society, I I have to use the we, um, the collective, that we were, you know, painting people into. I had no idea. Rosa sat sharing with us and using terms like gift and privilege and responsibility. And I'm thinking to myself, I was blissfully unaware of so much of what she faces On an hourly basis. And for her to continue and be hopeful, that says so much about the work that needs doing and that it has to happen now. Yeah,
1: that has to happen now. And I know I'm going to continue to watch her Instagram stories closely um, because I want to know what happens and I want to be able to help. But I know Rose is not alone. I appreciated how right off the bat, she talked about not only as a member of the disability community, but also spoke about people with mental health. And these conversations are essential for us to be having at this point, because we need to figure things out. We need to do things better so that people do have true choice at the end of life. I've got a lot to think about, Carolyn. I need to do some thinking about all this. But for our listeners, thanks for listening. Thank you for engaging. And please, we know that you're out there. You are hearing stories. You are talking with people. So if there are people that you would like to hear on our podcast, if you have stories that we should be hearing about, please don't hesitate to reach out to us and please share Rose's story as widely as you can, because as she said, there are more Canadians out there who need more help so that they can live well until the end of their lives. Let's go get that next conversation happening.